Hello, and welcome to this edition of the official Aphonia Recordings podcast. My name is Andrew Senna, and today we are going to take a look at the experience of the famous story, The Phantom of the Opera. As a novel, a film, and as a musical, The Phantom of the Opera has captured many imaginations, including my own, which I'll recollect here later. First off, just a few bits of news. Recently, Nuclear Aminals released a self-titled album and is now currently on sale at the Aphonia Recordings website as a CD and a download. Look for it to become available later this month on the iTunes Music Store, and it is already available on Amazon and other online retailers. Makes a great stocking stuffer, especially for you Daniel Johnston fans who might be excited to know that a cover of Walking the Cow is on this release. Also in the news, Portland's own Mangled Bohemians has released Degeneration, a collection of haunting textures freshly minted, and also available on the Aphonia Recordings website. But now, on to Phantom of the Opera. It has become a bastion of Broadway musical fame, grossing more money than the film phenomenon Titanic of 1997. The Phantom of the Opera has entered into the lexicon of popular culture like other similarly schmaltzy stories precisely because it surprises us by being both grandiose and humble, dealing with both profound beauty and distorting ugliness. Ultimately, the uglies kind of win this story as it unfolds into a tragic metaphor of finding the beauty inside. It is also rife with self-possession, obsession, sexual fervor, and ultimately, mystery. Andrew Lloyd Webber musical has played on all these themes at a pitch so nauseating as to turn audiences looking for adventure away, and attract, like flies to a neon light zapper, those audiences seeking abatement from the human condition. Folks that come from the suburbs roll into a Seattle hotel once a year during the holiday season to go shopping and see a real touring Broadway show, such as The Phantom. Like the Weber musical, the lights and glitz of the city are a kind of ode to the consumeristic bliss that characterizes the holiday season. They are beacons that lure us away from ourselves, and ultimately, the Broadway production succeeds in this very way.
The film, I think, at least tried to get closer to the heart of humanity, rather than create a Vegas traveling sideshow out of it. The film isn't masked behind garish set pieces, and being silent wasn't beholden to the songs so luridly malnourishing to the brain that it might cause one to feel pleasantly numbed with a lingering bad taste. Kind of like going to the dentist. The musical was designed to drag in cultural neophytes by the droves and to give them familiar territory to explore. In many ways, the film predicated itself on the same kind of universal appeal, but whereas the musical seemed ripe for its time, the film was perhaps decades ahead. Particularly in a time when the xenophobia of the Chinese Exclusion Act and the paranoid Red Scares in the U.S. still loomed. In The Phantom, the fear of something mysterious, misunderstood, or deformed was certainly infantile, but somewhat more modern in its conceit. Ugliness, or maybe even foreignness, was redeemed to a certain degree in The Phantom, the film. Unlike The Birth of a Nation, The Phantom of the Opera rose above a certain cultural legacy to inform an audience of beauty rather than evil. Whereas The Birth of a Nation influenced the technique of filmmaking, Phantom invaded film's content, inspiring a whole genre for years to come, for better or worse. The real Phantom of the Opera, as a novel and as captured on celluloid, is an anthem regaling not only the additive sentiments of love and loyalty, but also the somewhat unoriginal, don't judge a book by its cover platitude. What makes it work, and what made it the most frightening thing I remember screening as a child, is that it also contains a compelling mystery, which when revealed, is all the more horrible. When I was around eight or nine years old, my dad took me to see a screening of Phantom, which cut I can't honestly say. The setting could not have been more appropriate for this film. In Spokane, where I grew up, there is an Episcopalian cathedral called the Cathedral of St. John the Evangelist. 
While its name might be quite informative, it is merely dressing for what is a rather large English-style Gothic cathedral nested on the crest of what locals call the South Hill neighborhood. Though later in life my travels in Europe would make this particular cathedral look like an eager third cousin to the behemoths of St. Peter's in Rome and Santa Maria del Flora in Florence, as a child it was a singularly unique and impressive structure. Set upon a hill and near drive-through coffee joints, Little Caesars, pizzerias, and turn-of-the-century boomtown mansions converted to apartment complexes, St. John's is as much the jewel of that neighborhood as St. Peter's is of Rome. In any case, the film was shown there on one cold winter night, a slight coat of snow on the ground. I remember people leaving their coats on for the first half of the film, as it was difficult to heat a cathedral efficiently. As the film wore on, it became warm enough to dispose of puffy-down jackets and ski hats. The music for the screening was a pipe organ score performed live. Even the most ardent atheist would have to admit that the sound is overwhelming. Needless to say, it might explain as part of religion's stage show special effects why so many felt the presence of God in such places. The pipe organ was a massive sounding and giant vessel, invisible and everywhere, and loud enough to tickle the air. While the novelty of these things diminished, title cards and the seemingly unimpressive quality of the old film print made my eight or nine-year-old brain disinterested. I was used to Pee-wee's Playhouse, for God's sake. A stream of concentrated and manic energy beamed directly into my already overactive brain. This was, by comparison and post-novelty, the most boring thing I'd ever seen. Later, I would see this as to be precisely why what would come next scared me so completely. What I wasn't prepared for was the moment when Lon Chaney is unmasked. audience fresh to this film might wonder what was so terrible about it, many already know because the image is ubiquitous. Just look at our flyer for the show on MySpace. Not knowing how truly repulsive the Phantom was, was precisely why it startled me so profoundly that I recall seeing that face while trying in darkness to sleep after that. It may have encouraged me to insist for what seemed like most of my prepubescent ears remaining that my mom leave the hallway light on.
During research for this piece, I found out that I wasn't the only one to have this reaction. General audiences that viewed the film in the 1920s and 30s wept and fainted at the sight of Lon Chaney's made-up face. Their brains were perhaps like mine at that age. The mystery once revealed was so disturbing as to even have us root for the Phantom's demise. Although some compassion can be discovered for the Frankensteins, there is some kind of relief when they are overcome, both to put them out of their misery, but maybe to put us out of ours as well.
This coming Friday, December 12th, 2008, Aphony Recordings is hosting a special screening of The Phantom of the Opera with a live score performed by Rachel Carnes of Twin and formerly of The Need, playing piano and organ. Heather Hall of Olympia, employing electronic gadgetry of mysterious origin itself. Derek M. Johnson on cello, who is a regular guest at our showcases and who has played with Blood Clot, Frequency DB, Unwound, and our own Ben Robertson. And last but not least is Daniel Busher on flute and percussion. He is moving to Montreal to complete graduate studies in flute performance and as such will be a farewell performance for this ensemble. So, on Friday, December 12th at the Gallery 1412, 8pm, we expect to see you at what ought to be a very special one-of-a-kind type performance. You have been listening to the recording of this ensemble from the 25th Annual Olympia Fest, uh, Film Festival, and of which excerpts will be released on Aphonia Recordings uh, very soon here. We look forward to putting this out, albeit without the accompanying film. That's copywritten, as you can imagine. That is why we couldn't encourage you more to make it to Seattle Central District for the performance this Friday. And for those of you not familiar with the area, that's uh, 1412 18th Avenue, near the corner of 18th and Union in Seattle's Central District. We look forward to seeing you there. And thank you for listening to this edition of the official Aphonia Recordings podcast. Please visit our website at aphoniarecordings.com or check out our, our MySpace page. You can subscribe to this podcast and find more music from our label on the iTunes Music Store, Amazon, and others. Uh, incidentally, you can't subscribe to the podcast on Amazon. You can only buy stuff there. So podcasts are free. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Andrew Senna, and goodbye. Thank you.